Good morning, everyone. I can hear y'all. It's awesome. It's so good to be back in church and on a very significant week worldwide. This is considered to be Holy Week for the church worldwide as we commemorate all of the events of Jesus' life, specifically his death and his resurrection from the dead. And of course, Easter weekend next weekend is that weekend. It's an opportunity for us to not only be a, a church that celebrates it alone, but we get to join with our sisters and brothers across the world and celebrate that Jesus is not dead, he's alive. Can I get an amen? So it's also an opportunity for you to invite your friends and your family members or people you bounce into or bump into and uh, invite them to come to church next week, perhaps with you if you can. And uh, on all three campuses, we got two services on Sunday morning and one in Spring Lake Park on Sunday night. We also have Good Friday service, which is a completely different service on each campus. So if you want to come Friday, we'd love to celebrate with you and the victory that Jesus won for us on the cross. And then Sunday morning, it's about the tombstone being rolled away and uh, Jesus coming out of the grave. And I'm really looking forward to it. I encourage you to be a part of that. We're in our final week of the Truth About series, and the Truth About, we've been looking at the truths that are something we can anchor ourselves in. A world of fake news, we need to find reliable sources, and of course, we've talked about how the Word of God is a reliable source. Jesus said, if you obey my commands, if you, if you do what the Word says essentially, and you put your house upon it, then when the storms come and things come against you and the chaos of life comes at you, you won't topple over. The storm won't wash you away. You'll actually stay in the journey. So I want to encourage you, stay in the journey with the Word of God. The Word is a firm foundation that you can build your house upon. We talked about the Father heart of God and God the Father, God the Spirit, and God the Son. This week, we're going to be talking about the church. And uh, as we talk about the church, I I know that... um, Worldwide, everybody sees the church in different ways. And you and I have different vantage points as the way you came into being in this Sunday morning. Either you're watching on one of our campuses or you're online watching our services. You see church through the lens of your own personal experience. So maybe you think of steeples and pews and rows and uh, stained glass windows in your history. Or maybe you think of service styles and big, loud music or very quiet and liturgical and uh, reflective type of worship. Perhaps your background is such that you were a Baptist or a Lutheran or a Catholic or um, maybe you were a crazy charismatic or something like that and you saw life through the experience of of growing up around it. Some of us didn't have any church experience and we look at the church and we've got our opinions ba- based on our own journey. And, and you're probably even just checking us out and going, I don't know what I think about the church, Pastor Nate. You better show me today. Um, so we all come from ver- various vantage points. But what is the church? And, and I, I think that some, you know, if they're to be skeptical or um, um, critical, they would look at the church and they would only think of the scandals or think of moral failures of leaders that have been in the church. And And maybe that's the only vantage point that a person may have, or maybe you've gone through hurt, or you've thought about uh, church, and you thought maybe it's just about the service. And I I think a lot of us would look at it and realize 
that there's changing perceptions as well as the church. In fact, younger generations uh, have approached it from a, a unique perspective because in recent decades, uh, Christians have come under fire by popular culture for some of our beliefs. And so we're seen as odd or weird. And just a couple years ago, there was a hashtag that many younger Christians were utilizing saying, I'm a Christian, but... Um, and they were saying, I'm a Christian, but I'm not homophobic. I'm a Christian, but I'm not mean-spirited. I'm a Christian, whatever. And they, would, they were trying to make a statement that I can follow Christ, but I'm not like those people. And so even in the, in the social context and the social discourse, people have begun to go, well, I'm a, I like a church, but I don't like that kind of church. And we can see ourselves as different from others that are in different churches and uh, I came across an article where Bar Barna Research Group talked about the newest group, and that is uh, their, their label would be those who love Jesus but not the church. And uh, they're Christians who say their faith is more important to them, but they haven't attended church in six months or more. They think they still love Jesus, still believe in Scripture, most of the tenets of their Christian faith, but they lost faith in the church. It's interesting because... I bounce into people in the grocery store and in, in the Twin Cities. I'll run into people all the time that have attended our church. And, you know, church attendance patterns have changed. And uh, it used to be that when, uh, when I was a kid, we were in church. Sunday morning, two services. Sunday night, Tuesday night prayer meeting. Wednesday night kids thing, all-nighter on Friday. How many know what I'm talking about? You, you were in church all the time. Now the, the pendulum has swung all the way to the other end where a, a person considers themselves to be a part of and a regular part of a church if they attend once or twice a month. And so it's shifted uh, so much so that I'll run into people and, uh, and they go, hey, pastor. And, you know, sometimes people want to tell me what to preach. So they, uh, they'll, they'll say, hey, you know, after we get talking, hey, you haven't... You haven't preached on this subject for a while. You haven't preached on the Holy Spirit. You haven't preached on it. And I'll just look at him and go, have you been in the series that I've been preaching? Because the last three weeks, that's the topics I've covered. Oh, oh, yeah, we were busy. We had this and this and this and this and going on. Which says, I'm a part of the church, but I'm not always a part of the church. And so we, the pendulum has swung the other way. And uh, what I wonder is, some people might be wondering, is the church relevant anymore? Are its best days behind her? Is it time to put the church in mothballs and put it on the shelf? Um, you know, what, what is the value of church? And of course, I'm speaking to people attending a church service. But I think, you know, as far as your personal connection, how you feel about church, and is it a part of you? Or is it something you just attend and go to? Is it just something that you can check off the list and move on with the rest of your life? Or is church a part of the rest of your life? I mean, those are some of the questions that I think many of us have. And really today, I want us to look at the designer of the church, Jesus, and what he had to say about the truth. What did he have to say the truth about the church? And I want you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 16 today. In fact, get your Bibles out, wave them at me real quick, and then I'll let you go there. If you got them electronically, yeah, let me see. I can see your phones and stuff. Matthew chapter 16. Um, again, I want to keep challenging you, double dog daring you to bring your Bibles to church. It's a great place to read. Don't just let me read for you. You know, if you can, I'd love for, to have you reading as much as possible. Jesus 
has been leading his disciples and they've watched him do miracles at this point in Matthew. Uh, they've seen him proclaim truth to the crowds. The, earlier on in Matthew was the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes. And, and so you, he's got history. These guys have been walking with him, talking with them. They're on this, the journey. But in this text, we're gonna see that Jesus begins to give them a new revelation of something that they haven't seen yet. And Jesus firmly has it in his mind to be a part of the future. And Jesus, of course, will we'll talk about the church in this. Verse 13, it says, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi. Everybody says Caesarea Philippi. These are words you don't ordinarily say. You can say Minneapolis, St. Paul, or whatever. What is Caesarea Philippi, and why is this important to the story? Well, Caesarea Philippi is about 25 miles northeast of Jerusalem. It's kind of near the border of Lebanon and Israel, and that whole region within a hundred, couple hundred miles of Syria, which has been on the news quite a bit, and uh, some of the things happening around the world. Well, Jesus chooses to speak to his disciples, not by mistake. There are no mistakes with him. He chooses to kind of reveal a truth to them in a particular location. Caesarea Philippi was a place where, as you would walk into town, there would be about 14 different temples to Baal, another god that's talked about a bunch in the Old Testament, that are worshiping other gods in that town. And so you would see that. And then you would also see that there is a temple to the god Pan. Pan was the god of nature. Okay, is, is said to be the birthplace, Caesarea Philippi, was of the God of nature in that religion. And they had a very large temple there. Out of that, that religion is pantheism. Pantheism is worshiping nature. It's worshiping the spirit world around you. It's new age, perhaps some of you remember, new age uh, conversations. But I think it could be as simple as worshiping nature. Okay, just nature to the exclusion of the creator of nature. Now in our day, you might say I'm not a new ageist, I'm not a Baal person, but you would know people around you that perhaps they would rather give their life to the lake than they would to anything else. Now I'm not saying there's anything wrong with going to the lake, having fun outside, getting out of the ATVs or out in a boat or whatever, but there is a point of, 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 of where everything in life hinges, and that is, do we worship the creator of nature or do we worship nature? Does that make sense? So Jesus is there, and then he's also got synagogues all around him, and then the city itself has a temple that's set up to the god Caesar. Caesar was the Roman emperor, and he was to be worshiped as a god wherever they went. There's a rather large temple there, and that temple was um, expanded by a Roman general named Philip. Philip expanded it to make Caesar famous and for people to worship there, and he renamed the town. It used to be called uh, Pan, but it moved to Caesarea Philippi. Okay, so I'm giving you a little bit of backdrop. The reason I'm giving you that backdrop is because what Jesus is about to do is he stands in the middle of all kinds of religion, all kinds of belief systems, and he's going to make a declaration about the church, but you can't understand it without understanding where it is. See, the reality is Jesus is about to say, 
I want you to compare what I'm going to build in a church to all these other religions. I'm going to declare it and right in the middle of it. It works and will work anywhere in the world in the middle of any circumstance. Whether they're worshiping the God of the, the government, the Roman emperor, or the God of business, or the God of nature, or the God of selfishness and taking care of yourself, this church will stand in the middle of it and it will work. We'll get to that in just a second. But before Jesus actually declares what the church is to the people of, uh, to his disciples in Caesarea Philippi, before he declares the truth about the church, he asks two questions. Let's look at verse 13. The first question, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the son of man is? Well, they replied, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and others say Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. So he asked them, what do other people say? And they say, this is what other people are saying. But all of those other prophets are actually good people. These aren't bad people, but Jesus is greater than these, that level. So he, they named people greater than themselves, but not as great as who Jesus was. And so he says, who do other people say? What do the blogs say? What do they think? What do you think today in 2017 people would say about Jesus? Well, he's a good man. He does good works. They have, they'll say the same kind of things nowadays, even in the church. You know, what do we think? What do people around us think about Jesus? Well, I don't mind putting my little bit of time in on a Sunday, getting, listen to a, a decent message, and then going on with my life, but it really doesn't have anything to do with my life. It's just another one of the TED Talks I get. It's just another one of the, the inputs that I get to my life online. And Jesus asked his disciples who have been with him all this time, who, who do they think I am? But then verse 15, he says, then he asked them, who do you say I am? He makes it personal because he's wanting to reveal something and he wants them to focus in on him. By the way, there's a little clue that Jesus gave earlier in the question when he asked his disciples, who do people say that the son of man is? That title son of man clearly identified him as a Messiah. You can go back into Daniel and you can do Bible studies on this, but the reality was Jesus was given a clue. But how many know even when you're up close and you're hanging out with Jesus, you don't always get it. So he's taking them down a path to say, I want to show you who I am. He says, You've walked with me, you've seen miracles, you've seen me tired and hungry, you see me in every situation. Now, who do you say I am? Who do you say? I think that's a question that he may ask you and I today. Who do you say Jesus is? Is he just a good guy? Is he just another one of the TED Talks out there? Is he somebody that is worth looking into further? Jesus said, who do you say that I am? Verse 16, Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus replied, you are blessed, Simon of John, because my father in heaven has revealed this to you. You did not learn this from any human being. He says, you're the Messiah. You're different than. You're above and beyond. And he revealed. By the Spirit, Peter's able to say what Jesus really is. And Jesus is looking for this moment from his disciples. It's like a, a maturity test. Like, okay, you've been following me. You like what I'm doing and all of that. Do you even know who I really am? 
We got to recognize who Jesus really is. He's the Messiah, the son of the living God. He's not just a religious artifact that we worship once in a while. We see paintings about, and, and there's a little Last Supper uh, Da Vinci painting on the wall, and it seems so true and archaic and real. It's good. No, he's the Messiah in real time. He's alive. He's near. And that's what he's leading these disciples to. Now, the Messiah is the Christ, the anointed one. And Peter said, you are the son of the living God. Jesus doesn't talk about the church until we recognize who he is. And we cannot understand the church until we yield to the authority of Jesus as Lord in our lives. See, listen, Jesus won't reveal the church to us until we see him as Lord. I want to pause here because this is really important. I'm going to talk about the church, but let's be honest. We all evaluate church from different lenses. I like the style, the length of the service, the volume, not the volume, the, the music, the preaching. We evaluate the parking lot, the coffee in the lobbies, the cleanliness of the bathrooms. We, we evaluate everything, right? And if we do it from a human point of view, we will never understand why the church is a truth that we should anchor our life upon unless we understand Jesus and who he is as Lord. To be Lord is a title, and it simply means that he's in charge. He has ownership of and direction and authority within a particular domain. You only have responsibility for a few things in your life, your finances, your relationship, your business, your career, all of those things that you have, you are not the Lord of unless, unless you, he lets you be the Lord of that. And he is not the Lord of those things in your life unless you yield to him and allow him to have lordship over those areas. Well, don't touch my money, preacher. I don't want your money. But Jesus wants to be Lord of your money. I, I can't get in the business with your, your relationship, but Jesus wants to be the Lord of your marriage. He wants to lead you in those areas. So you won't understand the church until you understand Jesus is Lord of your life. And he's different than everything else. I mean, I could, you know, sometimes we mess it up and we, we don't realize just how important Jesus really is. We think that the devil is strong and Jesus, and the devil is equally as strong as Jesus. And that's simply not the truth. I mean, I could play a game of opposites with you. If I say tall, you say, if I say fat, you say, if I say large, what do you say? If I say light, what do you say? Okay, if I say rich, what do you say? In every one of those cases, it might be an equal opposite. But if I say Jesus, you say, you can't say the devil because he's not an equal opposite. So this is what I'm saying to you. You have to understand he's actually Lord over everything. Everything. Sometimes I think, I think before we get into that conversation about the church, we need to say, Jesus, you're Lord of my life and you're Lord of the church, which we'll see in a moment. But you'll look at the church through a different lens if the church is your church and you'll sit back based on your preferences and you'll go, I don't like the preacher. I don't like the way the lady smiled at me when she handed me the bulletin on the way in. I don't. And you can go into the mode where you're Lord. But when you're a part of the church, he has to be Lord. He has to be the one that is leading us. 
And if you understand that, you bow your knee before heaven, you thank Jesus for saving your life, and you say, God, beyond my life, everything else is gravy. I appreciate what you want me to appreciate. I'll go where you want me to go. Like Paul said, I'll be content with whatever you give me. And if you can learn to submit to his lordship, then he can reveal to you the church through his lens. And this is what I want you to see. Look at verse 18. Because Jesus prophesied before this moment, there, never, there was no church. When he makes this prophecy, he's declaring something to be. He's calling from heaven into, into being something that had never been before. He says, now I say to you that you are Peter, which means rock. And upon this rock, which by the way, when he makes this statement, he's not saying Peter is the, the rock. Peter is the one that he's going to build his church upon. He's saying the declaration that Peter proclaimed, that you are the Christ, the son of the living God, is that. He says, I will what? Build my church. Say that with me. Build my church. And all the powers of hell will not conquer it. And I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you forbid on earth will be forbidden in heaven. And whatever you permit on earth will be permitted in heaven. Jesus makes a declaration. And this declaration is powerful. Okay? It says that it's unstoppable. Things are going to happen that are crazy. But he declares it the church. Everybody said the church. That's, that word church is ekklesia in Greek. It simply means the assembled ones. And it means people are going to come together from all kinds of parts of life, if you will, all parts of the sanctuary, all parts of the culture around you. And people are going to come together and I'm going to build a group of people. There is never one point in the scripture that the church refers to a building. At the only time you would ever see anything related to a house or a building is when the church would gather within it. But it was never about the building and it was never about the house. It was God calling people from every ethnicity, every socioeconomic status, every type of educational history, every suburb, every urban context, every skin color, every language group. He was calling them together. Friends, listen to me. When he talks about the church, he saw a group of people coming together. He saw it in local context as well as global context. He saw the church spreading throughout the whole world and he saw the church coming together in local communities. That church was something he was pulling together and into. And as he pulled them together, he began to call them words like the family or the body of Christ, the building of God, the temple of, of God. And essentially what, he was, essentially what he was saying is these people are coming together and they come from those places you don't have to change your ethnicity to be a part of the church. But when you become a part of the church, you add on new things to you. When you become a part of the church, you are connected to other people. And he pulls us together. One of my favorite churches that I visited over time was a church called Brooklyn Tabernacle. Brooklyn Tabernacle in Brooklyn, New York is a great church that for many decades that are known for their choir and their prayer services. And we used to take missions teams into New York when I was a youth pastor, and I'd take our teams, uh, our teenagers, in to visit that church. And one of the unique things about that church is something that I think that God is doing in this church 
And that is in Brooklyn Tabernacle, you will see a Wall Street millionaire sitting next to somebody that was homeless on the street. They are both together in one location. That only happens in the church, friends. That's what Jesus does. He calls us to be shoulder to shoulder, to work together. And listen, you won't find any other place that that happens like this. When we come together, yeah, you might be a Democrat and you might be a Republican, but when you come to church, you're the church. You are coming together. When you are the church, you look back at the world and you don't see us versus them. You see hurting groups of people, needy groups, people that are, are, are crying out for, for help. And you have an opportunity to be a part of the body who makes a difference outside the church as well. It's a miracle, but Jesus called it forth right here in Matthew chapter 16. And Jesus said that his church belongs to him. In Ephesians 1, it says, God has put all things under the authority of Christ and has made him head over all things for the benefit of the church. And the church is his body. It is made full and complete by Christ who fills all things everywhere with himself. See, the church isn't just a church. A church is underneath the head, Jesus. And Jesus wasn't just saying that for a time period back 2,000 years ago. But he meant it for every year since then. Every day since then. Every continent since then. Jesus is Lord of the church in China, and Jesus is Lord of the church in Africa, and Jesus is Lord of the church in South and Central America. He's the Lord of, if there anybody in North Pole and South Pole, he's the Lord all the way around the world. He is the Lord, the leader. And we declare that this ecclesia has a leader, and his name is Jesus. Now, every time the ecclesia is used in Scripture, it doesn't refer to people gathered just locally or universally. It goes back and forth. And he would say things like the church in Ephesus or the church in general. But the mo most important thing for you to catch is that it's mobile. It's not restricted to one location. It goes worldwide. And Jesus, when he had a vision... He speaks forth that prophetic vision over the people that have yet to be born. And we're a part of that prophetic vision. We're a part of what God was speaking forward, what Jesus was saying. And he was seeing things that we don't always see. He, what did Jesus see? Say that with me. What did Jesus see? I think that's a question we need to ask ourselves. What did he see? What did he think of for us? Because I believe he had vision for what could be. In the book of Acts, he saw what would come after um, the spirit was poured out and the church was forming. He saw people who were called in the way from every background as the good news spread. And Romans and Jews and Gentiles all became a part of the ecclesia in a marvelous blend of culture in the church. There was a shared commitment in that. And that shared commitment was the communion of saints was found in small gatherings and large. This communion of saints was a big deal because hell had tried to stop the movement through persecution, but they had failed. And that commitment that everyone has to stay under Jesus' leadership and to endure and persevere to the end as his representative in the earth, that was what Jesus was promising. The gates of hell would not be able to conquer what Jesus wanted to do with us together. Today, 
No one helps the church, the poor more than the church in the world. We are the world's largest charity. I'm not talking about Emmanuel only. I'm talking about the church. We, you pull the church out and the world is in trouble. Hospitals are built. Refugee care is done through the church. Education system, disaster relief, public service. We are the ones that Jesus envisioned being a part of his mission to reach the world around us. And he saw a picture that was not just for one moment, but for a lifetime. This is what I want you to consider. You're sitting here right now and you attend a church service. That's not the same thing as saying, I'm a part of the church. You're a part of the church when you declare Jesus is Lord and you connect with your sisters and brothers. And you're a part of his mission in following the leadership of Jesus as Lord. But you don't know what that means as you go along. I was this week talking with one of our missionaries, Michael Kramer, who actually grew up in our church and left in the early 90s. And uh, while he was here, he and I were talking, they're now missionaries in the Himalayan mountains in Nepal area. And uh, as we were talking, he started crying. And I said, what's going on, Michael? He said, I'm just remembering the time when I was a teenager at Emmanuel. And I went up to the front to the altar and I kneeled down after a service and I was praying. And I kept feeling the tug from God that I was to go into school to, for architecture. He said, I felt like God wanted me to do something and I wanted to reach people, but I was wrestling over, should I go for architecture or should I do what everybody else is telling me to do, go to North Central and uh, to Bible college. And he said, I know I wanna do ministry, but I felt like the spirit was leading me another direction. So he went and he went to art, did his architectural degree, got his master's degree, and he formed a business, and he, he met his wife, and they lived in Milwaukee, and they did missions trips throughout over a decade and a half. And then the time came as his business grew that both of them felt with their daughters that God was calling them to go overseas to the, to the Nepal region. And they couldn't make sense of that, but they went. And the way they had to get into it, because it was a restricted access country, it's illegal to do church there, that he had to use his business to get in. So his business became his platform to get into a restricted access country. And God gave him unique designs for blocks that were earthquake resistant and some other things. And, but he started hiring people. And he said, about a year and a half in, I started going, Lord, is this all there is? that I'm just getting in and I can have one-on-one -on -one conversations periodically. I don't feel like I'm doing anything for you yet. And then the earthquakes hit. You remember those earthquakes about 18 months ago and, and how it just rocked the region, 9.0, whole houses, communities gone. And uh, he and his wife and the girls had to live on the floor of a temporary housing for months. They had PTSD from it and worried about earthquakes happening again. And he said, when that hit, the world noticed, and all these charitable organizations wanted to send their money, and they wanted to take care of the, the hurting people over in the Himalayan mountains and all of the, the earthquake, da earthquake damage. And, and he, said, um, he said they would call the government, and the, government, the, the prime minister said, no problem, just send the money to my personal account. And I'll distribute it as I see. How many know that money would never reach the hurting if that were the case? 
So these, gov- these agencies, things like Samaritan's Purse and Convoy of Hope and, and uh, Feed My Starving Children, trying to get their food into the, uh, those areas, couldn't do it. So then Michael gets a, uh, a call from somebody from Convoy of Hope. And they said, hey, we can't get our money in. We want to help. We've got millions of dollars available. And there's food available, but we can't get in. Do you think maybe we can get in through your business? And because his business had been hiring and had reputation with the government, and because they were lawfully employing people, that became the conduit for all those millions of dollars to reach the people in the entire region. So when Jesus said, I will build my church, it didn't mean just so that you can stay in the four walls forever. God may tap you on the shoulder and send you around the world and establish the kingdom of God for his purposes, but you got to be in your heart connected to the church. You see, the key to all of the communion of the saints is that they receive power by meeting together and staying under Jesus' leadership. They had to be together and under his leadership. Everybody said together. Turn to the person next to you and say, you got to be together. I didn't say get your act together. I just said you got to be together. <laughs> Acts chapter 2 is the earliest picture we see of Jesus' early vision. As the New Testament church started taking off in verse 42, it says all the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper and to prayer. A deep sense of awe came over them all, and the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders, and all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. They worshiped together at the temple each day, met in homes for the Lord's Supper, and shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. Now this is a powerful picture of what the communion of saints or the church looked like in the early days and I dare say to you needs to look like in 2017. Because they devoted themselves to the apostles teaching. They were committed to the word of God. You know how important and critical that is nowadays? It's absolutely critical. People if it's not politically correct, you can get shamed into doing something that the Lord of the church doesn't want you to do. It's important for us to be committed to the word of God. But they were also in fellowship. They did life together. They hung out together. They were in it for each other. That's what we do with connect groups here at our church. It's not just about getting together and praying, although that's a big deal. It's also getting to know each other, have some fun together. And those, listen, relationships take time. You don't have a hang out all the time type of relationship with people in the church week one. It takes time to build relationships. Shared experiences are important and it should grow. But then they also shared meals and it says including the Lord's Supper. So Jesus, this is a reference back to Jesus on the night before when he was betrayed, they took the bread and the cup And they shared communion. And then Jesus said, we know later on in Corinthians, that it says that we are to do that as believers in remembrance of who? Of Jesus. 
So communion was not about just taking the elements. It became something that they did in the context of relationship together. And they looked at each other and essentially said, stay in the game. Don't fall away. Let's stay in this thing together. These people were not perfect, but they were trusting that Jesus' grace is found when we are linked to the church. The promise that uh, the gates of hell will not conquer is not an individual promise. It is a church promise. If you want to conquer the gates of hell in your life, stay connected to the church. When you drift away, you lose the power of the church. You lose the community of the church. You lose the safety and protection of the church. And friends, that's why the enemy works so dang hard to get you not to come to church. Because if he gets you distracted in a way, he can wipe your life out outside the church. I'm trying not to like preach too hard at you today, but man, I'm fired up about this text. It's good stuff. Good stuff. And when institutions fail us and families fail us and governments fail us and cities fail us, Jesus is bigger than corruption and able to heal the nations. Friends, he designed his church to be a together thing and we have to see it that way. Like this table is. Christianity is meant to be together. Communion's together. We need to be together. And there's always room at the table. There's an empty seat. There's always room for the world that's outside. Jesus is interested in the people who are away from him. He's caring about them. In Luke chapter 14, verse 21, it says, The servant returned and told his master what they had said. His master was furious and said, Go quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and invite the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. And after the servant had done this, he reported, There's still room for more. And so his master said, Go out into the country lanes and behind the hedges and urge anyone you find to come so that the house will be what? All right now. So if you're a part of the church, there is always a yearning because you know there's some empty seats in the house. You know you've already invited your family members and your friends, but Jesus would say, don't stop there. Now go up and anybody you meet, call them to the table. Anybody you run into, call them to the table. Well, I'm, I'm too scared, Pastor Nate. I'm too, t- that's just not me. That's for other personality types. Who is the Lord of the church? And what has the Lord told us to do? Now you deal with him. Don't deal with me on that one. You need to consider what the Lord is calling us to do. To invite them to be a part. That's why we do Alpha here. Alpha is a safe place to have conversations. And we do it in a way where people can get together and ask their authentic questions and not feel stupid for asking it. And then along the way, they curiosity helps them reach and find and discover Jesus. How many of you have been a part of Alpha at one point or another? It's a powerful way to invite other people into a conversation. That is the church. When they gather around tables, that is the church. Next week, we have Easter. You have an opportunity to invite people this week. And the Lord would say, he wants them to come. Jesus' prophetic vision requires connection to the church. Why don't you pull your bulletins out? And our, our scripture for the week is found in Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews 10, 25 says this. 
Let us not neglect our meeting together as some people do. Mm-hmm. But encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. Why don't you read that out loud with me? You ready? And let us not neglect our meeting together as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. I know that we're fighting a lot of forces just to be a part of the church. But can I encourage you and challenge you to find ways, especially for you parents, your kids need to be connected to the church. And I'm not saying they need to be there for numbers sake, it's for their future. You want your kids to overcome the gates of hell? You You want your kids to make it? They need to be a part of the church. And I know, and nowadays, we've got every, there's dance things, there's sports tournaments, there's all kinds of, it's, we only get a few warm days a year on Sunday, it feels like. And you, there's all kinds of other things we can do, but can you fight to find a way? I know when my kids did traveling basketball, I wasn't pastoring, and we would go to a different town for a tournament. I would literally take my sons to a church that was open on our breaks between games. I didn't care what church it was. Well, I did. I wanted to make sure they believed in the Bible. But I, they didn't have to be my kind of church. There wasn't an Emmanuel in that town. But I made sure that my kids experience life with other believers. Listen, church is not just sitting down and watching us online. It's not just sitting there and hearing a good podcast sermon. You can hear them all. But just listening to a message does not make you a part of the church. You've got to be connected to other believers. Turn to the person next to you and say, I need you. But he says in Hebrews 10, it also says, but encourage one another. That simply means when you get together, it's not to beat people over the head, make them feel guilty and shame them. It's to make them feel better, to encourage them. We have one of our sterling examples of an encourager here in our campus, one of our Team Emmanuel parking lot team members. Gisela is one of the greatest people we have around here. Uh, and uh, you don't know her for a long time. She was at door four and greeting people, but now she's at door one because we moved during construction. And I got, we've got an email this week from someone else about her, and I just want to champion her. She said, uh, this email says, Gisla, who works both services on every Sunday at door four, before last week, I would have already told you that the best greeting is at door four with her. Then Gisela, who my wife and I had never talked to longer than a few minutes, took the initiative to create fellowship and gave a handwritten invite to my wife and I, as well as many other people she often greeted. The invite was to go out for a night of bowling with her and her husband at Brunswick. To our surprise, when we showed up at Brunswick, the lanes and catered food and sodas were all paid for as a part of her gift. She even decorated with balloons and created a little trophy for the best bowler. It was an awesome blessing and everyone there felt really honored. I bring this up because she showed uncommon initiative and a passion for people. That's encouraging each other as the day approaches. That's it. We're going to have communion in all all three of our campuses today, and they're going to begin to distribute the communion cups. If you're a follower of Jesus, I invite you 
to receive communion with us today. If you've yet to be and you want to give your life to Jesus right now, you can do that. In fact, the best way to do it is in your own heart and mind to just bow your heart before God and say, Jesus, I believe in you. I surrender to you. And you give him your life in your own personal prayer moment right now and he will hear you. He'll become your Lord.